Hello, and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash Strategica. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and today we examine the topic of the most recent issue of Strategica, the potential of terrorists to conduct large-scale attacks in the United States, and we are joined today by the author of one of the pieces in this issue, Ralph Peters, author of more than two dozen books on strategy and military affairs, Fox News strategic analyst, and a member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. Ralph, thanks for being with us. I appreciate the opportunity. All right, so the, the question that sort of anchors all of the pieces in these issues is how likely is it that we'll see at some point another terrorist attack on the scale of 9 11? Um, since that's our backdrop here, Ralph, and since we're coming up on the 15th anniversary of those attacks, let me start with that day itself. At a remove now of a decade and a half, if, if I took Ralph Peters back to September 12th and then showed him where we went in the next 15 years and where we've arrived here in 2016, what would, what would surprise you about how we've dealt with the threats from terrorism and from radical Islam? Um. It would be a neck-and-neck neck race between the willful naivety and the um, politically directed incompetence. We could have done far, far better. And certainly our initial reaction after 9-11, going to Afghanistan, smashing the Taliban regime, that was good. That was exactly the right thing to do. And then the Bush administration made the fatal mistake of staying and trying to nation build. And then, of course, we went to Iraq. And then, even under Bush, we had so many targeting restrictions, and we didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Well, we don't want to make enemies. We acted in ways that are utterly foreign to the mentalities of the Middle East and, and South, Asia, South and Central Asia. Didn't take time to understand the cultures and what they value. We imposed our values on them turned Iraq and Afghanistan into looting orgies for U.S. contractors. <clears throat> so really, we, we squandered lives, we squandered treasure, we squandered power, we squandered our image in the world because we, we didn't do the basic things that any member of the Strategic Working Group, um, or the Military History Working Group, uh, could have told them you have to do. You win. You fight to win. You do whatever it takes to win. And the sooner you can win, the fewer the casualties on every side. If you're not willing to do all it takes to win fast, you are virtually guaranteeing a long, bloody, ugly struggle. So there are many, many other factors. But I feel that we, after, after a good start out of the blocks after 9-11, uh, we quickly um, degenerated into politically correct warfare. And even today, as you know, we have so many in our government, including a president, who doesn't even want to face the fact that Islamist terror has anything to do with Islam. So this willful naivety, uh, it, it kills Americans, and not just Americans. It's killed half a million people in the Middle East, at least. And there's this arresting formula early on in your strategic piece where you describe the sort of asymmetry in the strengths of the West versus the strengths of the terrorists. I'm going to quote here briefly for our audience. You write – we have, we have immense reserves of physical and financial power, but the Islamists have strength of will, clarity of purpose, and rigor. 
that dwarf our own, close quote. What, what do you attribute that to, Ralph? Well, to the subject we cannot address, religious faith. I, it is our misfortune strategically in the United States and in Western Europe to be governed by a class that is at best agnostic, often outright atheistic. And I'm not talking for holy war here, but in order to understand another man's faith, you have to have at least some glimpses into faith yourself, some, if not personal experience of it, some sense of its history and ambience, and above all, the power of faith. And if you just look back at those 15 years since 9-11, it is utterly astonishing that our enemies, underfunded, uh, horribly underfunded, undertrained, under-equipped, uh, not led by professionals, have been able to hang on. Fifteen years after 9-11, the Taliban is still there, and it is making inroads against the Kabul government upon which we have lavished resources. How can that possibly be? Well, it can be for two reasons neither of which are comfortable to us. One, they are driven by the power of faith. They're willing and even, in some cases, eager to die for their cause. Our Afghans are cutting up pieces of the pie, officers stealing their soldiers, uh, rations, money. Now, why would a young Afghan want to die for the Kabul government or even fight for it and risk death, uh, let alone voluntarily die? So, So much is a matter of strength of will. What we don't understand that in the context, the difficult context of Afghanistan and Western Pakistan, Pashtunistan, if you will, we're the redcoats. We assume that everybody wants what we want, but they don't. And although I have no sympathy with the Taliban, let me stress that. I'm not trying to make a case for their, you know, the virtue of their uh, Taliban victory. But they obviously they represent a significant constituencies on both sides of the Afghan-Pakistan border. And they are, in the eyes of some of the Pashtuns, uh, they are freedom fighters, fighting, if you want, for the freedom to be oppressed by their religion. But people often love their own, it mystifies us, but they love their own ways of life. They love their barren hills. They're, they're, they're stony mountains, and we don't understand that for some of the people that keep the, Palestine, um, the Taliban alive, uh, whose children fight for the Taliban, that they are the good guys. And unless you understand that for somebody, the Taliban or ISIS or al-Qaeda, for that matter, are the good guys, you won't get at the root of the problem. Now, this goes, too, beyond cultural attributes. In your piece at Strategica, you also point to organizational ones. You sort of argue there that ISIS actually has a pretty functional management structure that really redounds to their advantage. Give our listeners a sense of what that looks like. Yeah, it's actually remarkable. Uh, they don't, I'm sure they don't they, – while they study us, they don't read our corporate management manuals and books. <laughs> and yet, from necessity and, and invention, um, they have – designed relatively flat organizations, minimum bureaucracy, where they can, act, re, they can react very quickly to changes in the market, if you will. Whereas one of our hindrances, a great hindrance, is our bureaucratic approach to warfare, where it's hard to hit fleeting targets because you have to clear it with so many people. Some targets the president himself has to approve, and that goes back to LBJ in Vietnam, by the way, although 
then it wasn't as bad as it is today. And, you know, we've got officers and pilots and soldiers just looking over their shoulders all the time, wondering, if I make a mistake, am I going to go to Leavenworth Prison? But so we have this cumbersome cumbersome decision-making process in too many uh, situations, whereas our enemies, well, they may deliberate a bit on big issues, but on tactical matters and operational matters, they can just do it. Uh, they have great flexibility, and again, it's, it is a little bit like the North Vietnamese in that one of their great virtues is their poverty. They have to be inventive, whereas we are so wealthy uh, as a people and as a military that we get lazy. So, oh, yeah, we can do that with a drone. It's okay. We can do it with a drone. Um, but in fact, our, the pressures on our enemy, the odds stacked against them, and again, their poverty, have forced them to be incredibly inventive. And I would argue that uh, Islamic State is a much more postmodern, flexible organization uh, than our military, even if this postmodern organization of ISIS is in the service of a pre-medieval pre-medieval worldview. And I say pre-medieval because I've been cautioned uh, that the medieval world, and and I know this, was not nearly as as dark as we often portrayed as being. In many ways, it was a proto-Renaissance by the 10th and 11th centuries. But uh, at any rate, that's an aside. But the bottom line is this. We underestimate our enemies. And that is a huge military no-no. Never underestimate the, the, the guy facing you. And if you think he's only got a knife, be prepared for him to have a, a, a gun in the other hand. And we've done this since 9-11. Just well, listening to them as, oh, they're crude, their tactics are awful. But they're still there. Well, to that point, Ralph, the, the famous phrase that the 9-11 Commission devised to explain what happened was, a failure of imagination. What's, I realize this is somewhat unknowable, but if you were lining up candidates, what, what's the 2016 failure of imagination? What are the terrorism scenarios out there that we're not taking seriously enough? Well, I think the biggest one is we don't – even though we pay lip service to it, even though is the Internet and so many aspects of information technology are American or certainly Western inventions – we don't take its power seriously enough. And al-Adnani, his, his, perhaps his greatest virtue, uh, was that he intuitively understood the incredible power of the Internet to recruit, to mobilize people around the world. Uh, you didn't have to bring them into a, an army camp for basic training. Uh, they could just act autonomously, or in some cases semi-autonomously around the world. And so the combination of this, this relatively primitive, I would argue, degenerate faith with postmodern communications technology brilliantly wielded against us is, is what we still refuse uh, to come to grips with. And our counter-propaganda efforts, our, our information warfare such as it is, is so pathetic, it's, it's almost indescribable. We don't want to offend anything, anybody. It's got to be politically correct, as a result of which it has to go through multiple layers of approval. We can't play dirty, and if you can't play dirty, you don't win against these guys. So the final question that I'll put to you then, I, w- I was going to ask you, are we on a long-term trajectory to win this war? It sounds like I already know the answer to that question, so let me ask you this. If we're not, what do we have to do to get there? 
Well, we're not on a trajectory to lose either. We're a trajectory right. for a long-term stalemate. Right. Uh, because we have allowed uh, Islamist fanaticism to be able to claim so many successes. They've had 9-11. They've had their, they've had their caliphate, a real caliphate in being, even if it's currently under, under great stress. Um, and so the cancer has spread, and the cancer metaphor has been used by many people, but it's the most appropriate one. We didn't cut out the tumor when it was small, and now the malignant tumors have spread, spread throughout the global body. So, that, you know, and we also, again, is one thing I did address in the article, is we're all waiting for the next big one, the next right. 9-11 or bigger. And it may come, because we're faced by very talented, committed people. But in the meantime, what I think we miss is the, the cumulative effect of all the smaller strikes. Uh, Europe certainly wasn't much changed by 9-11 except airport security. But all these smaller strikes... Uh, over the years, in, in Britain, in France, in Belgium, in Germany, um, in Italy, they have had the cumulative effect of of tightening up European security regimes, internal security, to a degree that was unthinkable, even 10, let alone 15 years ago. And by the way, terrorist, our response to terrorism in the West has also cost us trillions of dollars uh, here and in Europe, as we sink money into security measures, some necessary, some not. But security funding is a, is a dead end. It's sunk cost. It doesn't ma- generate more revenue. It doesn't generate product. It creates a um, certainly a common good, but one that is, an, is, a, is essentially a, a, um, a fiscal dead end. And so I think we need to think more creatively ourselves. And that failure of the imagination, we need to get past that. We need to be able to think, I hate the phrase, outside the box. We need to be able to think outside the paradigm, outside the continent, outside history, uh, although informed by history, certainly. Uh, We need new ideas. And God knows, a combination of political correctness and bureaucracy are stymieing us left and right and daily, And so, you know, what do we face long-term? What would it take to defeat them? It would take integrity, determination, guts, and ruthlessness. Without those factors, um, the stalemate drags on for generations. And by the way, I should should say, jihad began in the 7th century, and it's never ended. But it has had significant lulls and valleys. And our real goal... We're not going to wipe out Islam or Islamist fanaticism. We just need to shove it back into the hills. All right. Our guest has been Ralph Peters. You can read his essay and those by other members of Hoover's Military History Working Group by visiting us online at hoover.org forward slash strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. Ralph, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Strategica, and I'm Victor Davis Hanson.